your brand will never be differentiated because if the top, if all the senior leadership is saying, we're a great brand, and then all the people at the bottom are saying, well, I can't actually make the brand great on a day-to-day -day basis, it's gonna completely fall apart. That was Justine Jordan, head of marketing at Help Scout. And these are the Brandwagon interviews. Justine, welcome to Brandwagon. Thank you. So excited that you're here. I'm excited to be here. <laughs> Is it true that while watching other episodes of Brandwagon, you you kind of you saw something up here and you thought, you know, I think I need that. So there were definitely a few that I recognized and that I was feeling very nostalgic. And there was also a contest between my husband and I of like if we could name the movies, because mm -hmm. they're a little bit blurry, yeah. right? You know, they're the depth of focus. field and yep. the focus. Yep. Yeah, yeah. But there was at least one where I won and he had no idea what the movie was. What was it? It was this Mandy Moore had a deal. Do you want to take it home? I would love to take it home. Can we get someone to uh can we get someone to grab this for Justine? <laughs> It'll be my prize, yeah. my brand wagon. I'll have the ultimate swag. There you go. Yes. Hard to get yes. that. How to deal. Because <laughs> um, Mandy Moore was actually kind of the inspiration before, like, when I cut my hair short for the first time. <laughs> oh, what were we replaced by? And Big is back. All right, Big okay. is back. <laughs> yeah. Look well, at this. you can hold on to that. Enjoy it. How um, do I play it? Um... <laughs> um I don't know. <laughs> I know that they work, but I don't know how to play it anymore. Is it actually? Yeah, it'll work. They all work. It's even rewound. Someone was kind. Yes, be kind, rewind. Yes. Oh. Another great movie. Oh, look at that. It even has a blockbuster sticker on it. <laughs> that is ridiculous. This is great. It's sad that this is probably the closest thing left to actual an actual blockbuster. Isn't there like one left in Alaska? There is one. There is one left in Alaska um, that is like pr that was franchised out. I think that like the someone bought the rights to. Okay. I don't think it's technically part was part of the, like the blockbuster empire. Okay. But that makes sense. I don't know how people how often people are going there and handling the VHS. I feel like people are probably yeah. coming here more. And actually, you know what I had to buy recently for like personal use at home? What's that? Was an external like optical drive to even play like CDs and DVDs cuz how do you even play those anymore? If you buy a new laptop, it doesn't have an optical drive in yeah. it. You still play CDs? So, we were cleaning out a closet and we found a whole bunch of um it had like iLife on it. <laughs> and um, some ancient version of like Visual Studio and yeah. a whole bunch of like software. And, yeah. like, remember when you actually had to install software like off of a CD or a DVD? Those are the days. Yeah. So I think like my wedding pictures are on actual negatives. I'm showing my age. Yeah. Um, and DVD. So, you know, oh, yeah, you can. <laughs> that is funny though, that there's like, there's the, you know, the era of content that is. In many cases, I, you know, I, I collected DVDs for a long time. I was so excited about that. And like, yeah. now they're, they're all gone. It's like, yeah, have we made like an era of content almost inaccessible now because it's trapped in a medium that no one can access. Totally. Yeah. So Justine, we've known each other for a long time, probably eight years or so. Mm -hmm. um, you were at Litmus, which is an email creative platform, you know, analytics on how emails perform, tools to test emails in different clients. And you ran marketing there and helped that company scale from eight employees to I think over 120 today or so. And now you are at Help Scout, and of course, I know what Help Scout is. Yes. But for those who don't know, could you could you tell us? I would be happy to tell you. 
So you might have heard of Help Scout as a help desk platform, B2B SaaS software. Um, but like any good team, like any good company, we're always evolving our positioning. Um, and more and more, we're leaning on this idea that we are a customer messaging platform. So if you're a customer-centric business that cares a lot about providing a human and helpful experience, um, Help Scout's going to have tools that let you communicate with the shared inbox, so the help desk platform, along with a tool called Beacon that's live chat, uh, self-service, as well as some uh, in-app and proactive messaging, documentation, so knowledge-based, that kind of thing. So a whole suite of tools that help you communicate better with your customers. And for us at Wistia, I think Lip, both Litmus and Help Scout have kind of been brand peers. You know, we're all companies that started self-service. We're all focused on small and medium-sized businesses. We're all focused on building brands that mattered, mm-hmm. um, which is pretty cool. And we've, I feel like we've learned a lot together because of that. I feel like the the companies have been. Um, I remember even like all the founders used to go on like retreats together. And we, I feel like we all kind of grew up together to a certain extent. Like we learned how to grow businesses. We learned how to grow marketing. We learned how to grow communities. It's nice to have those peers in the space that like care about the same things that you do. And it's also been interesting to see how everyone's evolved. Like yep, obviously Litmus sure. raised a lot of money a couple of years ago and is going like yep. up market in a little bit of a different direction. And Help Scout's doing a ton of super interesting, very different things I, I want to get into with you in the interview. Yeah. Um, but I also thought it'd be interesting because I know with your career, you started in design. And um, you were in design, and specifically, you then evolved into working in email design. Mm-hmm. And then you made your way to Litmus, which is a brand that is, has meticulous design. Mm-hmm. And then you've made your way to Help Scout, which is a brand that has meticulous design. How do you think um, design principles really influence brand building? I always say that going to school for uh, design or visual communication taught me how to think. And not just about all things, but taught me how to think like a designer. And there's a very specific methodology or framework called design thinking that I was trained in and that I use to this day as a marketer. I actually think it's a brilliant framework for marketing. And what design thinking teaches you to do is to identify the the root the root cause of a problem, and then solve it through a very methodical process. You identify solutions, you test them, you iterate, and then you put them back into practice, and the cycle continues. How big was Litmus when you when you joined? I was employee number eight. Okay, and how big was it when you when you moved to Help Scout? Um, probably like one hundred and twenty. That's a lot of growth. Uh huh. Well, <laughs> Looking back on that, obviously your job evolved mm-hmm. a ton, right? Like, for sure. Do you, the beginning, it's like, how do you get any traction? Yep. And at the end, this thing is scaling, it's a machine, it's an organization. Like, if you could go back, what advice would you give to somebody who's jumping into a company that is, that is eight people? Well, in, even in my situation, I'd never been a marketer before. And I was hired to do marketing as a designer. So for a long time, I even felt uncomfortable with this idea. I always downplayed my role as a marketer. I said I was a designer masquerading as a marketer. (laughs) When you started a company that's small, everyone wears a ton of hats. Everyone's pitching in to do whatever it takes. I remember in the early days, myself and then James, who ran our partnerships and all of our integrated, you know, just integrations, would 
we would both go on like pitches together. And even though like I wasn't a salesperson, like I was a designer, I had no really no formal business doing this. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but we would travel to target partners and I would um, demo the platform and I would talk about how it was really valuable to the designers. And then he would do all of like the business end, like negotiate the deal. And then I would go back to the office and I would write a blog post and then I would go to a conference. So back in those days, like you wear a lot of hats. And even the reason why we Litmus wanted to introduce marketing. I mean, this was again a while back before content marketing was even a thing. Mm-hmm. And I had established myself and, and my team back at Exact Target before they were acquired by Salesforce as a de facto source of information about how emails rendered in different email clients. And Litmus recognized the value in that content and that information and that thought leadership, if you will. Uh, You can love to hate that term all you want, but um, it is one. And so establishing a centralized resource where people could learn about that topic was really my charter when I first joined the company, was just to establish Litmus and myself as the de facto resource for where people could search for that. And this is before, again, SEO and content marketing had really become like a big deal. And then over time, that evolved, especially as we went out market, to being demand gen. And content marketing was a central tenant in making demand gen work. Litmus is a tool for email designers mm-hmm. to make sure that their emails render pro- like in the right way in different clients, yep. right? It's a pretty specific thing. Yep. And when you thought about getting a message to those folks, to those email designers, back then your instinct was, all right, we're going to make the best content for them. We're going to build a community for them and we're going to help them you know, find each other. Is that right? Well, the instinct, and again, this is where so many folks come to me and they're like, how can we build like a community like Litmus did? Or how can, how can we repeat that success that you had? Like, tell me all your secrets. And I think the, the somewhat disappointing truth is that I was very personally motivated to do this because I felt completely alone doing that job. I felt like I was the only person on the planet that was trying to figure out why this thing didn't render correctly in like Lotus Notes or, or Outlook, yeah. <laughs> which is a ridiculous problem. And then it kind of dawned on me as like a young, naive professional that, well, our competitors probably have people like me. Mm-hmm. Well, where are they? Like, why have I never met them? And I think all of that passion about creating that community didn't actually come from a place of wanting to do marketing. And I hate to even admit that. It wasn't like a strategic marketing decision at the time. We can say it is now. But I was trying to find other people like me and solve a problem. If we bring it back to design thinking, I was trying to solve a problem that I myself experienced, which was letting people like me that were facing those challenges find a community and find other people like them. But I think that's such a it's such a powerful insight, right? Because it's so easy to be by yourself or or think that your customer, you might be solving a very specific problem. I feel For like sure. new companies today are often solving very specific problems. I, we've all been there. We've all, I mean, I've talked to tons of companies that think of themselves as boring yep. because they're solving such a niche thing. But the reality is your customers, they are sitting there by themselves trying to figure this stuff out. Totally. And they don't have, if it's not, if there isn't an obvious community of folks, then there is an opportunity. To create So one. I think it's, it's interesting because it's like, you did that out of necessity and because you actually cared, but that turns out to be, that's how you, that's how you market, right? Is you, yep. you bring the people together and you give them a connection that they might not have had otherwise. 
Totally. That's cool. So at both Litmus and at Help Scout, when I look at the design that is in the brand, every detail is perfect, right? Like in the best way possible. Like I was looking at Help Scout's website yesterday and every drop down, the about page, the careers page, all of the stuff is just fastidiously done. How do you actually pull that off? Like how do you get the balance between we need to get stuff out the door and there's a deadline and yet at the same time, the quality has to be insanely high. It's not easy and things don't always ship on time. <laughs> <laughs> but it's really about hiring people like Help Scout's values are like ownership, excellence, and helpfulness. And we look for that a lot when we hire. And it's people that are just really great individual contributors at what they do. It's people that, you know, care very deeply about owning all of those details. I always say in like my job descriptions that, at least from a marketing standpoint, if you ship a campaign that has a broken link, like it ruins your day, but then you get over it and you move on. <laughs> so it, it takes a certain kind of like perseverance and, and grit and like commitment to excellence, but it also can't hold you back. And that's just a specific mindset that we that we look for when we hire balanced out by, you know, some good process and, and communication along the way. But it's also, it's a choice, right, that your customers will want that. It is. And, you know, like the customers at Help Scout very much desire uh, like a customer-centric experience and they appreciate those like fine details and that really refined experience. But they also really care about ease of use. And so all those things go hand in hand when you think about designing a really great experience because a lot of our, like our designers and our design team um, are really talented at like knowing our customers and doing that research and understanding what is going to be the most usable, helpful, like delightful experience for them. When I look at Help Scout, mm -hmm. Help Scout has a bunch of competitors, yep. some really big ones, mm -hmm. there's some small ones, and Help Scout has a quite a differentiated brand, mm -hmm. and it's been a conscious choice. How much do you think that brand matters in terms of a way to differentiate from competitors? I feel like, you know, you ask anyone that knows, like you go ask Seth Godin or anyone, or I even think Mark when he was on the show before, talked about how like you don't really own your brand. Like your brand is what your audience or even not your audience thinks about you. And even maybe what your not audience thinks about you is even more powerful than what your audience does because mm -hmm. what your brand isn't can be is just as powerful of what your brand is. Mm -hmm. And you can influence that to some degree, but at the end of the day, your brand differentiators are going to be articulated by your consumers or the businesses that you're trying to reach, depending on if you're in B2B or B2C. And for at least Help Scout or even Litmus or any company that I've ever worked at, it was a matter of taking your company values and empowering all the people that worked there to display them on a regular basis, no matter if they were an engineer or a customer support person or a designer or a marketer or whatever they were. And so using brand to differentiate, really, it has to come almost from the top because that's where values come from. It's from leadership displaying them on a day-to-day -day basis and then trusting and empowering the people that work there to do it. So it could be as much as you know, telling your support staff you can freely give refunds. You don't need to, whatever. You can, you can give people a trial of that feature. You can do whatever it takes to make the customer like, happy. So you're saying it's like, to do it well, it needs some strategic buy-in from, from the senior folks on the team so that they're enabling everyone to make all the decisions they need to make 
to try to scale the brand and make the brand stronger. It, it, your brand will never be differentiated because if if the top, if all the senior leadership is saying, we're a great brand, and then all the people at the bottom are saying, well, I can't actually make the brand great on a day-to-day basis, it's going to completely fall apart. So one of the things I think is really interesting about both Litmus and Help Scout is like, both companies actually used to have kind of a headquarters in Boston. Mm-hmm. Both companies are now fully remote. Huh? How do you how do you scale a brand? How do you build a marketing team yeah. that is high functioning that is fully remote? This is one of my favorite topics because I feel very strongly about how remote work can actually make you a better marketer. And I hope that she's going to watch Brandwagon at some point because my colleague Bettina um, at Litmus actually taught me so much about what it means to be a great global marketer, even if your audience is here in the U.S. So Bettina is German. She lives in Germany. And she raised our collective awareness at Litmus around just goofy things. Like we use cliched analogies, like making football references. Well, football in America is... American football, and the rest of the world, it's soccer. Yeah. That can be confusing to people. Yeah. You know, specifying things like what currency you're in, or even using my favorite is sports ball references, because it's such an American cultural thing to compare things to sports ball. And so I think the ability to be a remote team and to hire the best talent globally, no matter where you live, can open your eyes as a marketer to how other socioeconomic folks, other cultures, other countries perceive your marketing. And it just makes you a better marketer because you're not as, you're you're not as like pigeonholed into what you think is good marketing. It forces you to expand your horizons. So it makes the teams more diverse. It makes the teams more diverse naturally. Yeah. And I think it also allows you to hire for people. You're not constrained by geography. Like we live in Boston. Boston's a very competitive market in terms of you know creative and marketing talent because there's a ton of companies here. Think about a market like San Francisco. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. Uh, even just paying like a market salary there, you get really competitive on salary and benefits. Yeah. So oftentimes, like I'm Midwestern. I'm from Indiana. And so I'm a little bit biased towards Midwesterners. But I find that like, you know, if I can hire folks like in the Midwest, on the coasts, in Europe, right now I have someone from my team in Australia. It it just allows you to have such a a breadth and depth of perspectives and also to pay people fairly in other parts of the country. It just opens your eyes to so many different things that you normally wouldn't see as a marketer. And when you think about like, so getting obviously a team across the world, more, more cultures in the room, more backgrounds, more diversity, mm-hmm. which you know has been shown obviously to build stronger teams, better results. Yep. Um, and then, how do you actually, you know, I, one of the things I've always looked up to Help Scout on in particular is that I think communication internally mm-hmm. had to be so solid from a, when the team was pretty small. Like to make remote communication work really well, you need to make it rigid and focused. Everyone needs to know what's going on. Yep. Can you share a little bit about like? How, how that works to Help Scout and how you think about using your internal communication yeah. to build, you know, to help you build a stronger brand. Yeah, for sure. Remote companies, written communication, any sort of communication becomes critical because in, in proactive communication is even more critical. 
because you don't have those natural water cooler moments. You can't just wait to let someone in on a project when you see them getting coffee in the kitchen. So it has a couple of forcing functions. One is that you've got to write everything down and you have to plan ahead proactively to write things down and to communicate. So for instance, if I need to keep you know, a cross-functional team that's even outside of marketing abreast of a new product launch coming up, there's no way I can tell them other than to use like Slack or email or a wiki. We use Slab, but we used to use Confluence, right? There's a bunch of tools out there in the market that can help you do this. But you've, yeah, you've got to be very intentional and proactive and have even processes in place for like regular transparent communication. Otherwise, everything falls apart. And so the, and when you're getting into that mindset of being proactive, what does that look like? I mean, because I think you're right. Like for us, most of the team is in person. Yep. So you can go and run into somebody right after a meeting and be like, we're doing X, Y, Z. And they're like, that's awesome. But when you can't do that, like what types of things are communicated? Is it, you know, like I, th- I think what types of things are communicated, especially when you think about the decisions in marketing? Yeah. Because a, a lot of marketing decisions are risky inherently, right? They have sure. to be to work. So you mentioned earlier how all that uh, influences brand too. And when you're making a lot of decisions on the fly, sometimes in the middle of a campaign, I think every marketer's been there, uh, you're in the thick of it and you, you just have to make game time decisions, you have to get into a flow or into a process where you recognize or maybe even note that I made a decision and then revisit it and say, okay, why did I make that decision? How did I make the decision? What was the decision's outcome? And it's almost a habit of of documenting these things because they become part of your brand. Those decisions, whether or not you realize it at the time, those game time decisions become a part of your brand. Recently, we were sunsetting a feature and we made a decision to talk about it in a certain way. And that way was particularly helpful or technical or whatever. As soon as that becomes customer facing, again, knowing that you don't own your brand perception like your customers or your audience does, every one of those, and I think I got this from your co-founder, Brendan, is like a credit in your in your brand trust bank. And you can either put credits in or you can take debits out and you can keep building the perception of that brand or you can chip away at it. And so it comes down to every decision you make out of every marketing campaign becomes parts of your brand's vernacular. And so you've got to be intentional about making those decisions and then writing them down and then communicating not only you know, that you made it, but the why. And that's, I think, where a lot of people fall down is they forget to talk about the why. Why did we make this decision? What sort of impact did we have? And then at the end of the day, was I right or was I wrong? Yeah. <laughs> like, what was, what was the reaction to that decision? Yeah. Yeah, no, I think, and I think you are right that that's a Brendan thing, the trust bank. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it is something that I think it's, it's especially, I think, hard at the beginning to think, to get yourself to think about that. It's like, here are all the messages I put out to the world recently. This is what they stand for. People are paying attention to some of them, but let's say they're paying attention to half. Like, what should they feel at this moment yep. if I have to deliver bad news? And I think one of the realities is we pay a lot of attention to the positive things we're putting out into the world. Yep. And I think sometimes the negative stuff, we try to push it under the rug. And like, you know, don't, oh, you had a, a breach, security breach. Should you tell all customers or only people who are affected? Yep. You know, I've heard many companies, I mean, would that happen to us at some point? And I remember that debate happening, and we're like, well, we're telling everybody because it's going to get out. We want them to know what we did, and hopefully we responded well. 
And I feel like it's often the negative moments that are communicated that are the ones that are like actually incredibly important for how they affect the, the trust bank. For sure. Well, what's that, um, the Barbara Streisand effect? Where if you, have you heard about this? I, I have, but I can't remember what it is. I think I learned about it on Wikipedia. Okay. But <laughs> no big deal, Wikipedia. <laughs> um, where if you try to sweep something under the rug and like, like get rid of information that's starting to just go around the internet. Yeah. It actually. Uh, fuels a fire. It, it, it yeah. accidentally like, like magnifies it because you're trying to hide it. Yeah. So sometimes you just have to like embrace it and say, this is who we are and then make the most of it. Yeah. For sure. So Help Scout is a B Corp. Yes. What is that? <laughs> so a B Corp is a, is a company that tries to balance purpose with profit. So rather than just making a ton of money and making its founders and stakeholders and shareholders rich, um, it tries to do some good with the profits that it's making too. And in particular, Help Scout feels very passionately about environmental sustainability, about underrepresentation in tech, and about human rights. So not only are we a B Corp, but around the same time that we got B Corp certified, we started a not only a marketing campaign, but like a brand pillar, let's say, um, that we call Help Scout for Good. And being a B Corp is part of that, but also this idea of these standards that we care very deeply about will even provide companies that are doing good work to advance those issues with deeply discounted and sometimes even free software to help them, to help support their That's how you're living out the values. Exactly. Yeah. And that all comes back, I think, to some of the conversation that we had earlier about about like how do you communicate as a remote marketing team and how do you put these values and standards at play as a brand to help build that. Yeah, that is interesting because it's because like from a size of company, mm-hmm. I feel like Help Scout in the grand scheme of things, you know, not a huge company, small company growing fast, yep. but taking a stand on something and doing it like really thoughtfully and it's very well outlined like if you can't miss it yep. on Help Scout site. Like you figure out that you're a B Corp. You figure you figure out that there's Help Scout for good. You figure out that you're that Help Scout cares about like getting more underrepresented folks in tech. Like it's all it's all there and clear. And it's funny it hadn't occurred to me that that was the reason that that stuff is so clear is because Help Scout's like remote first. But now in this moment, it seems like it probably is. I think that those remote communication habits that become ingrained in your culture again, exemplify your marketing or roll into your marketing because companies that are remote first, I feel like their marketing is clear, it's transparent, it's direct, and that probably comes down to the communication style of the marketers that were that were hired in the first place. The inside has to match that match the outside. Absolutely. Yeah. You can't you can't have like chaos internally and then try to, you know, sit in a meeting and make it clear outside. It's like because you don't have the same meetings. Like it, it, and, and if your culture internally relies very heavily on verbal water cooler conversations and passing and there aren't like documented, I don't want to say rigid because we're flexible, but if there aren't documented policies in place about how information gets communicated internally, I, I don't know how you would expect any less. Like if you're hiring marketers that are only good at like having water cooler conversations like are sitting around like a, a table in a meeting room and they're not good at writing stuff down, how would you expect their external written communications to be really great? So Yeah, I don't know how you wouldn't. And that's obviously <laughs> critical if you're trying to communicate nuanced things to customers. Yeah. And that's why I, st- I strongly believe that every marketer should be an excellent writer. I don't care how much copy you actually write, but if you can't like be a great written and verbal communicator as a marketer, I don't expect how 
understand how, how you'd ever expect your actual marketing to be <laughs> wonderfully communicated either. <laughs> so is it true that you're working on a show? Maybe. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the show is in pre-production. Okay. We have filmed a pilot. Okay. And we're uh, in the process of lining up our, our next two. So we're going to do three episodes as part of our, you know, we talked about the design process. This is part of us iterating and testing. Yeah. <laughs> To see if, if we're able to solve, uh, you know, a, a problem that we think exists, which is this idea that there are customer-centric, obsessively customer-centric brands, that their customer-centric obsession is what ultimately becomes their brand differentiation. That's like their brand moat. Exactly. Yeah. And maybe even in the face of, like, giant competitors with really deep pockets, with tons of money, with tons of resources. We jokingly say internally that these companies should be dead, but they're not. And usually it's because they have some sort of just deep connection with their customers that make them successful. That's awesome. And so you've shot a pilot mm -hmm. and did you set out to do that first? Or like, tell me, tell me about that process. I mean, you know, Building brand wagon and uh -huh. getting guests before there was a show. A little hard. bit tricky. A little tricky. <laughs> what are you going to do? Am I going to look like an idiot? Yeah. Um, are there going to be distracting VHS tapes that I need to take home with me? But like, tell me about like how it's. What types of guests are you looking for? How did you get to the place where you decided to make a pilot? Yeah. Well, to be completely frank, this was something that was already in process when I joined Help Scout. But I was really excited by the idea and really excited to contribute in some in some sort of way moving forward. But the the process started with really just one one brand who I won't say quite yet because I don't want to ruin secret. the surprise yeah, uh -huh. for everyone. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it's a brand that you probably haven't heard of unless you are a devoted member of that community. Cool. And it even has kind of like a controversial name. Now I just want to tell you about it. Yeah, what is this brand? <laughs> what, is, what is this guy? So it, it's 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 a brand. It's a company called Death Wish Coffee. Okay. Right? Yeah. <laughs> and so you'd think like Death Wish Coffee, even their logo is like a skull and crossbones. Yeah. Uh, and it's like all black and white and it looks kind of like dark and heavy. So it's like a risky coffee to drink. You Well, again, you would think that on the surface, yeah. but you dig just a little bit deeper and the purpose and the meaning behind Death Wish Coffee is actually super inspiring, super positive. Their whole brand ethos is around the idea that you only get one life and you need a beverage that's going to, you know, caffeinate you and fuel you so that you can make the most of it. Okay. I like that. It's it's a kind of a mission you can get behind. Oh, yeah. Um, and especially, they, they claim to make the world's strongest coffee for people that are very passionate about their life's work and what they wanted. Like the most caffeine per cup? I, th I think so. Okay. <laughs> I'm not sure if they've had this tested or anything, but... <laughs> I'm sure they have, yeah. They probably yeah, have. Yeah. And so, like, again, you start to dig, like, a little bit deeper. Like, people have, like, death wish tattoos. Actually, I was just in Acadia National Park, like, hiking a few weeks ago. Yeah. And there was a guy on my kayak trip that had a death wish sticker on, like, his water canteen. So people that are death wish they, coffee fans are, like, diehards. They have, like, an incredibly strong connection. They have, like, very strong brand affinity. Talk about brand affinity. Yeah, yeah. They have it in spades. Yeah. People are, are incredibly loyal. 
and it's not just because like the coffee is strong, it's because of the the community and, and again, like the ethos that they've created around the brand. It's all these people that feel very passionately, very strongly about doing great work in their lives. And they have like a Facebook community and uh, like a whole social media, like a whole community manager. So much of their marketing is very community oriented versus like being traditional marketing. Huh. And again, like the, the connection that they have with their customers runs so far, so much deeper than just like they like their coffee. <laughs> yeah, it's like a, it's almost like, well, I guess it's drinking Deathwish coffee is part of your personal brand. Exactly. Because they have such a strong stand that if you are if you are someone who loves it, it represents them. Yeah. The Deathwish coffee represents who they are, that's and that's cool. why they're willing to get their logo tattooed. Yeah, because if it's about making the, the most in life, like I can see that. That's that's awesome. Yeah. And then now you're looking for the the other guests like round out the series. We, we have one other guest lined up. Cool. Hopefully uh, going to shoot next month and we're working on our third. Cool. Um, but yeah, to your point, if you don't have a show, if you don't have something to show these folks, yeah. I have a hypothesis and I think your brand represents the hypothesis and I yeah. want to talk to you about it. Yeah. it it's been challenging. I'm not going to lie. Yeah. Even things like how do we want how do we want Help Scout as a brand represented as we shoot the show? Yeah. How do we want like our employees on camera to to behave and interact? Like again, we feel very strongly Help Scout for Good is all about like underrepresentation in tech. How do we have our brand values showcased in a show that we're making? Well, it's interesting because a lot of the stuff you're talking about is like actually that pre-production is hard. Pre-production and, is incredibly hard. And it's also the thing that when done properly, you end up with like a repeatable output. Yes. It's like, oh, okay. So the, you, you know, it's the, and it's usually the hardest in the first episode, I would say, uh-huh. but getting something that you can look at and you're like, this is actually what we want. This feels right. And up until that point, it's like, how do you get the balance of all those different things? And the something that's right, getting to that one show is incredibly powerful internally and externally mm-hmm. because internally it was one of those problems where like we weren't really sure that we had it nailed until we saw it mm-hmm. and that's one of my the design problems that I, I hate like that I'll know it when I see it yeah <laughs> because that's hard with video um, and production because it's expensive and time consuming so you can storyboard and table read and script but with a documentary you don't really want a script you know we don't have something I don't have a teleprompter behind yeah. me here. Yeah. <laughs> So getting all of that right from pre-production-wise and internally is one thing, but then getting it right so that your brand is represented externally so you can go sell the show to other people to get on it is incredibly difficult too. But once we had even a rough pilot in place, it's made the, the next conversations that much easier to say, look, this is what we're going after. Well, and it keeps getting easier, right? Because you're going to find the things that work and you're gonna say, aha, this is how Alp Scout always gets into this yep. show. Or we're always gonna have like a clip of an employee here in this way. Yep. We're always gonna start in another way. Uh, and it's funny because even what you're describing, you know, we had the concept for Brandwagon and we thought we're gonna shoot these interviews, we're gonna have the desk intro, we're gonna do all this stuff. But it wasn't till the first episode was put together with all the pieces, you're like, wow, like you can watch it. It makes sense. Like yeah. it all flows the way it's supposed to flow. And then it's become easier and easier and easier to repeat it, yeah. which I think is part of the magic. It's like the hard, it's hard to find a format. Yeah. And then once you can find it, like a format that represents the brand and accomplishes the goal that you know you have a pilot for, I think it is much easier to repeat it. Well, and I swear I'm not being paid to say this, but Wistia is a is a great help because y'all have done this so many times. You're experts, even going back like 
eight years ago when I first discovered Wistia and was working with the platform and I shot my first like iPhone video, like your resources and the fact that you learned the hard way and educated the market about how to do like video better. I remember the first time I wrote a script and did a table read at Wistia's suggestion. And I was like, oh, this made all the difference in the world. Like a little, a little bit of pre-production, even if it's just a one-person marketer writing a script and doing a table read, even to time myself to make sure like, oh, well, I wanted to make a 90-second video, but I wrote three minutes worth of content. Whoops. Yeah, well, it's funny because it's like, you know, for years, I feel like we've been on this trajectory of like, all right, we're going to teach people how to make, how to, you know, create their own studio. Uh Basically taking a conference room and putting the paper up and all that stuff. And then we're going to teach them about the iPhone. We've like worked our way to the place where it's like, well, you are confident, I think, at this point that you can hire a team or you can do people internally can make it. You can make a great video. Yes. It's like, but how do you make a great video series? Yes. And at this point, Wistia, because you've done it before, yeah. made Brand Wagon, like you're in such a great position to to help people like us, even though we might have a little bit of video experience, learn from your mistakes, because you've learned a lot about the totally. way and we uh, Yeah, we've made a lot of mistakes. We appreciate you telling <laughs> us about them. <laughs> Um, you know, you also had a series of limits, right? The email market share. Yes. I, you know, I've never thought about that as a series, and I appreciate you elevating it to that level. <laughs> well, that's what it was. It was the same format every time, it right? It was. And for those who don't know, tell us tell us about that. Yeah, so uh, Litmus had a piece of software, or still does, called Email Analytics. And the idea is that you embed this tracking pixel in your email, and you get all this great stats back around like who's reading, where they're reading, how long they're reading. It's a great marketing tool. A little plug for my former employer there. Behind the scenes, like Litmus is collecting all of that data in aggregate. And we anonymize it and then used it as, as a marketing tool, but also to educate the market. Because... A lot of folks, because Outlook was such a difficult client to build emails for to get the rendering to look right, a lot of folks got really hung up on how their emails look in Outlook. Well, if you don't have anyone reading your email in Outlook, maybe you shouldn't care about it. And so we used, uh, we called it just email client market share as a way to not only evangelize like the product and to get a little bit of word about that, but also just to educate the market around this is a thing. You can understand where people open your emails and that way you can tailor your design and your testing around that. So we took all the aggregate stats and I produced a monthly, quarterly, depending on where we were in our evolution of the program report. And it was usually like a blog post. And then we would film, it was like a two minute video that was just the highlights. You know, Outlook raised three spots. It went down. I looked at all the stats and it was just a like an overview of what what the market was doing. Well, it's funny because I remember our team used to watch it. Yeah. And we would talk about that exact thing because like it is hard to make emails render properly in all of the clients. And I remember people being like, I don't want to do it for Outlook. (laughs) Don't do this. (laughs) Or sometimes it was like, whoa, the iPhone, like so many people are using that default mail app and none of us are because we're all using some other thing. And so we think it's looking fine. And actually, for most people, it looks horrible. Yep. And that was like this funny thing because it was like that was incredibly repeatable. Yep. And very simple. But it was like building a connection to you and building a connection to Litmus like as the experts. Yeah, because eventually, like once we experimented with the format enough times, exactly, we had a high top table. We put an iMac on it. I had like a keynote template that I would yeah. filter in like the different stats. And even like the behind the scenes, like the production bit, I had a colleague that I would pull in, like one of the people that weren't remote, and she would uh, stand behind me with the the clicker to the keynote. And we would even have like a verbal and hand gestures where if I'd like messed up a line because I didn't have a teleprompter, I yeah. would try to 
memorize like chunks of lines yeah. at a time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so even things like that, because I was memorizing a lot of numbers and those numbers had to be accurate. Because you're looking at the via and that's yeah, the whole via. thing, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, we, we very much got it down to a science where the first few took us, I mean, they'd probably take us a couple hours to film because again, I wasn't doing table reads. I wasn't writing the script out ahead of time. But over time, you get the keynote template, you get the format, the setup, and then we could just, you know, shoot it in 20 minutes usually. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Justine, I know you get very passionate about what great marketing looks like. Uh-huh. And over the years, I've heard you and witnessed you give a talk where you discuss email blasts. You're provoking me now. <laughs> Am I? Uh-huh. Email blasts? Why don't more people send email blasts? Shouldn't we be blasting more folks? Why aren't we blasting? What's the deal? <laughs> 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 I do get quite passionate about this topic. You're correct. So if you think about the term blast, it's quite a negative word. It kind of sounds like violent. It's like a weapon of mass destruction. Why? So, and if you also think about email as the most powerful and also the most profitable marketing channel, why would you want to violently communicate with your customers in a way that's both valuable and profitable? <laughs> so I, I feel like uh, for the unseasoned marketer, maybe, you always get a pass maybe the first few times you use email blast if you use it with me uh, mm -hmm. in a conversation. Mm -hmm. But I'll always be eager to educate you around why you should change your thinking. And, and you could talk at end, or we could talk at end about how this even goes into like brand and how you, how the language you use is a reflection of your company, your values, uh, your brand. Well, as a marketing it's how you're treating your customers, right? Like if you're sending a blast, if you're blasting your customers, it's not that much respect for the people that you're messaging. Exactly. Because if, if your, if your marketing team or you as an individual feel, uh, if your attitude toward email is a blast, it probably indicates a lack of respect, as you said. It probably indicates even tactically a lack of strategy around segmentation, around personalization, around providing the right message to the right person at the right time, which are all things that make email such a powerful communication medium. So if, if you're talking about blasting your customers internally, it's probably saying a lot about your attitudes toward email and even your attitude as a brand that you think you can violently communicate with your customers rather than having a conversation with them. You know what's so funny is as we're having this conversation, it's making me think of viral videos. Yeah. Because like for so long, people said to me like, well, I just really hope my video goes viral. I hope my video goes viral. And over time, people realize that like, you know, it's that's kind of an accept, very dramatic exception to the rule. Yep. But viral means that you're getting sick, right? Like yes. it's, there's a sickness <laughs> that is going out into the world. And it's just ironic, I think, to look at social media today and like we know how it affects people's mental health and how it affects um, their perception of their selves mm -hmm. and like even what's real and what's not, it's like hard to tell. But this idea of, it's, I, it's, it's almost the same thing. Like if someone says like, oh, I hope my video goes viral, I think I probably have the same feeling that you get when someone says like, oh, we're gonna send out an email blast. Cause it's like, if you think that that is your strategy, then you don't, you don't have a sophisticated strategy. Like you don't know who your audience is, you don't know how you're gonna talk to them. You don't know what they care about, what they need, what, they, what connection they want. It, it shows a complete lack of sophistication and even a lack of awareness around 
your needs as a marketer. I've always felt, and this is, I think it comes from my background in email, that it has to be a give and take. You've, as a marketer, I believe in in, in servant marketing, where I almost put the needs of the user ahead of my own as a marketer. Because if I'm not providing value, they have no reason to engage. They have no reason to have affinity to my brand. I'm not doing anything for them. So why should they do anything for me in return? Totally. You got to make them a hero, right? You got to help them succeed. And only through that can you build a connection. So right. if, if you're talking about, yeah, blasting yeah. and vi- virality, then you are completely selfish. Yes. So we're done with email blasts. And we're done with the viral videos. Justine... Thank you so much for being here on Brandwagon. This is awesome. Thank you for having me. 